and welcome to Eat Drink Opera. I'm Zachary Newman. And I'm Teresa Powell. And this is the podcast where we make opera more accessible over dinner and a glass of wine. This is season two, episode three of the podcast. Wow, I can't talk today. Hi. <laughs> season two, episode three. Today we are covering Verdi's Rigoletto, pairing it with Osobuco Milanese, as well as a little bit of Tribal Hill First Vintage, which is an exceptional Texas wine, which we'll get into more in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we do that, I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, a good personal friend of mine. We've sung together several times, a great tenor and a general all-around good guy, Evan Brown. Hey, that's Yay. me. Hey, how's okay. it going, man? It's going well. How are you enjoying dinner? Um, uh, well, if we don't get this show on the road, I'm just going to keep eating myself. <laughs> well, we only have so much, but feel free to get yourself more. Um, yeah, so we're very excited to have Evan on today. Um, we'll get to know you a little bit more in just a second. But first, we're going to talk about kind of what we're talking about today, as well as um, I'd like to just give a little shout out to some mental health stuff. So there you go. Um, Tell us. Today, like I said, we're talking about Verdi's Rigoletto. Good save. Today we're talking about Verdi's Rigoletto, um, one of my favorite operas musically, although maybe a little bit problematic. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and and this is a dish I've been very excited to cook for a long time that I've never actually tried before, and it turned out pretty dang good. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, I think so too. And and this is a, as well a wine I've been hoping to cover for a while. So this is just an all-around uh, episode I've been excited for for a while, and, and glad we're finally getting a chance to do it. Um, before we get into all that, I wanted to talk just a little bit uh, for myself. So... As musicians, as working people, I find that we all get like really stressed out all the mm-hmm. time. And uh, I've found a hobby. <laughs> yes, you have. And and I don't want to necessarily talk a lot about my hobby, but more about how my hobby has helped me. Um, and just a shout out to hobbies in general. <laughs> because I used to say whenever whenever I was in college that, um, you know, singing was what I did and, and wine was my hobby. Well, now I work in wine. So singing is what I do and wine is what I do. So that, that can't really be a hobby. I need a break from that. And, and I've recently found this hobby. I play disc golf. If you follow my personal Instagram or maybe you're friends with me on Facebook or something, you might have seen that I play a lot of disc golf lately and I know it's it's often perceived as lame but I'm often perceived as lame so that's fine um but it's just been a really nice kind of way for me to get out of the house and just do something that's not related to work get some sunshine and and so I just want to give a shout out if you've been feeling down if you are about to start experiencing seasonal depression like we all are because the sun's going to be out less and less you'll find yourself a hobby (laughs) And, and I know it sounds silly, but but do something that's going to make you happy, that's not related to things you have to do. Set aside 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, whatever you have time for, and just, you know, do it. Let, and, let off some steam. Yeah, and if you're interested in personal health for musicians and, and uh, mental health for musicians and that sort of thing, check out Teresa's podcast, which is coming back, The Perfectly Imperfect Musician. Yes, we'll plug things later. So. Yeah, we'll plug that later. Anyway, so that's just a little bit about kind of what's going on in my life. I had to I had to share because I'm just very pleased with everything that's going on right now. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for indulging me. You're welcome. Now, Evan, 
yes. to you. Um, before we get into kind of the subject of the day, we always like to ask our guests. Um, everyone has, as a singer or as a performer, that sort of magic opera, right? That opera that they were involved in, or maybe it was a show, I don't care, that, that you were involved in that that made you realize this was something you wanted to be involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so so do you have a magic opera? Do you have a, a magic show like that? Yeah, I actually have two. Awesome. So I uh, know I'm kind of breaking press in here. Uh, so... The first show is Pagliacci by Leon Cavallo, and that was the first professional opera I was a part of. I was just in the chorus here in Austin uh, several years ago, and that was kind of like the moment when all of uh, all of my hard work and dreams had kind of like started to manifest into something more substantial. Sure. So that one will always have a special place, as well as um, a few months later, I actually became a part um, of a traveling outreach program for Austin Opera where we performed uh, Pagliacci, so I had a little part nice. in that as well. So that definitely has like a uh, small place. I mean, and who doesn't love Vessi Lajupa? Yeah, I'm like, it's the, so. the sad clown. If you don't know it, you know it. <laughs> if you don't know, you know it. Right. So, and then uh, the other one was, or is, uh, Madama Butterfly by Puccini, which oh, is also yeah. just, that was kind of the opera when I kind of figured out that this was really what I wanted to do. So Pagliacci kind of got me in the door, maybe kind of realized that this was possible, and then Butterfly kind of like let me know that you need to get your stuff together because this is what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Have you had a chance to sing either of those uh, big roles yet? Um, Kanyo and Pagliacci is just probably several years down the road for yeah, me. Yeah, for I mean, sure. I'm just, I'm just 30 now, so that's a little, little far off. Um, but Pinkerton is something that I audition with regularly yeah. for companies. So. Excellent. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So That's hopefully hopefully that will uh, manifest. come to fruition. So. Yeah, I love it. I, I mean, Pagliacci actually is, I mean, maybe not a magic opera for me, but that was one of the first, like, legitimate arias I was able to really perform was Beppe's aria mm-hmm. from yeah. Pagliacci. You know, the little, oh, Colombina, turn it off. You know, it's like, a great little it's, it's a fun little ditty, and it's, uh, it's one that's kind of stayed in the back of my mind. Even as I've moved away from more character rep, it's always kind of been there as just a fun piece. It's fun to whip out at, like, parties, you know, because it's short, and it's fun, and it's wordy, and it's got the high notes, but not much. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah it's, a, it's a cool piece. And and then, of course, who doesn't love Butterfly? It's one of the most gut-wrenching pieces of music of all time. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Excellent. Excellent, man. That's great. Um, so why don't we get into a little bit of uh, food and wine? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. So... Um, there's always a different reason as to why I pair a particular meal or wine with an opera. Sometimes I pick the wine first. Sometimes I pick the meal first. Um, in this case, I, I really picked both at once. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew with Rigoletto, because it's Verdi, uh, because it's like classic Italian opera, um, and it's fairly accessible, it's very familiar, I wanted to do something that was familiar, you know? And so uh, Oso Buco is just a stew basically it's just you know it's it's kind of a a peasant's dish at the end of the day it's 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 beef shanks that are you know cooked down in tomato and wine and and some mirepoix and you just let it go and it's and it's a very simple dish to achieve but it's got so much depth in Mm. it so much flavor and i i thought that would be a nice pair for rigoletta Talk about like the the specific cut of meat that you had to search for today because you had a little bit of issue finding what you were looking for. Yes, so beef shank um, is is one of those cuts of beef that is often just kind of 
thrown away by butchers. You know, it's a very cheap cut of meat. It, it doesn't, it's nothing special. Um, it's kind of tough, which is why you have to stew it for so long in such high acid. Um, but it can be really delicious if you have the patience to cook it mm-hmm. down. Um, and so I had a hard time finding it. I started at, at an HEB and got all my ingredients and then realized they actually didn't have any, not on the shelves, not in the butcher case. So I was like, well, you know, let me go to Central Market because, you know, that's like a whole food style thing that we have around here. And, and um, I figured they would have it and they did, mm-hmm. um, but it was weirdly packaged. It was like every every cut was a its individual packaging. So normally uh-huh. you get like, you know, the styrofoam package of sure. like three steaks or something. This one was every styrofoam package was a separate beef shank. <laughs> so I was like, whatever, I got four of them. And I was like, let's just do some cooking. When I saw them, I asked you, are you cooking this like like oxtail? Right. You know, because that's kind of my, my go-to reference for this type of dish, you know, which I'm not a fan of oxtail. I'm, you know, my family's Cuban and that's sort of like a Cuban, Puerto Rican thing. And I never was a fan of it, but... This was really good. Yeah, this was really good. And I think that the main difference between this and oxtail is that it's a little less gamey. You know, ox does have a little bit of that kind of gaminess to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little less fatty. Now, it is it is a fatty dish, though. It's a fatty cut of meat. Um, but that fat gets really, really beautiful texture yeah, it wasn't when you too stew bristly. it. And, and this wine, which is good transition. Thank you. Um, <laughs> this wine actually is, is set up perfectly for this kind of dish. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the wine then. Yep. Um, for those of you who don't know, I do work in the Texas wine industry. Uh, I work for a winery out of Johnson City, which is on the wine trail um, in the hill country over near Fredericksburg. Um, and we carry this wine called Tribal Hill First Vintage, uh, which is an absolutely exceptional wine. It's very small production, only 30 cases produced uh, roughly. And it's a blend of uh, 63% Alicante Boucher, 25% Petite Syrah, and then 6% each Tanat and Mourved, which <clears throat> most people maybe only know one of those grapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? but, but all of those grapes have a really rich history and a really fun story to tell. Um, my favorite of, of the group is the Alicante Boucher, the informing grape on this particular wine. And the reason I like Alicante Boucher is that it is it's got a beautiful character it's a tinturier grape uh which means that that it's red all the way through uh most it's this beautiful purple yeah it's a really deeply colored wine and the reason for that is that alicante boucher where most red grapes like a cabernet or tempranillo um would be clear on the inside if you peel back the skin alicante is actually red all the way through Uh, so it does add a lot of color and it's actually used uh, not very rarely labeled, but used a lot in blending in California. Because in California wines, you can have a wine that's 75% of a thing and 25% of literally anything else as far as grapes go, and they can just label it as whatever the 75% is. So 25% of the wine, they don't have to disclose. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll have a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet that they want more color in, so they'll add 10, 15, 20% Alicante Boucher and really kind of boost up that color and not, you know, not have to label it. Uh, I do love the grape, though. It's got a, a kind of a cool story, and I know I'm kind of babbling here, but... Do it. Babble. Um, I'm enjoying it. You know more about <laughs> this than any of us here, so babble on. So, Alicante Boucher um, kind of got its big start in America as a as the bootleggers wine. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, like bathtub wine? Yeah, exactly like bathtub <laughs> wine. Uh, so during Prohibition, there was a law that stated a family could could produce their own wine up to 200 galleries, uh, 200 gallons per year per family. Uh, and so every year they would they would leave the Alicante Boucher planted because the thick-skinned grapes traveled well in trains. They didn't spoil very easily. Um, so uh, there's there's this one year I think it was like. 38, 39, I might be wrong, don't quote me. Um, but this train showed up in New York with like 240 cars of Alicante Boucher grapes. And all these families from all over the country come to bid on their, their grapes for their wine for the year. And one guy shows up and buys all of it. Oh my God. 240 cars worth. Um, well, it turns out it was the, the mafia, the mob, basically. And, of course. And so that became what was served in the speakeasies, what was, you know, being sold by bootleggers out of, you know, on the street corners and stuff. And, and it became America's wine for a long time. <laughs> um, and it also, it does make a really full-bodied, and, and if you add sugar to it, like they always did with their bathtub wine, a really, like, pleasing wine. And so... Yeah. So it's it, a really nice, like, just a table wine essence to right. it, you know? I mean, not like a tacky Oh, no, no, it's way. not super sweet, but... Right, but it's just, like, a agreeable yeah. enough to just be, like, a really gen- generic table wine if you wanted it to be that. Yeah, and, and this particular wine, um, I was very excited to use for this dish because... It's so bold and it's got tannin and like I've been decanting this. I opened it at like one o'clock this yeah. afternoon and knowing that we were gonna have dinner at seven. And I decanted it at six. So I mean it's been open a while, it's been breathing a while to really like soften those tannins and let it open up, but but it does have the tannin that can kind of go with that. But fat it also of the has meat. the acid That's, in there too. It, yeah, which yeah. if it's super high tannin, it normally I don't get that really like right. acidic bite to it. But this one, I get that little like thing in the back of your yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and the only other grape that I can think of that has as high tannin as Alicante Boucher while still having high acid would be Nebbiolo. So things like Barolo, Barbaresco, um, Nebbiolo Lange are gonna have. That big tannin, that bold, and in fact, Barolo is a traditional pairing with Osobuco. Um, and I posted about this meal on Facebook today, and my friend was like, "Open your Barolo right now!" And I was like, "Well, <laughs> this is like a slightly less muskier uh, Bolero." Uh, bur- bur- Barolo, yeah. Bolero. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly floral. It's got the high acid. It's got a beautiful, like, kind of stewed blackberry quality to it, mm-hmm. um, and it's just tasty. And I feel like the tomato and the wine in the dish really like brought out, especially the fruit qualities of this wine. Normally, I drink this wine on its own because it, it really can stand alone. Oh, so now, all right, now I'm really glad that you made this with white wine. You made mm-hmm. the, the dish with white wine instead of red because we kind of went back and forth about that because if you are cooking beef, kind of that default is I'm going to cook or deglaze or whatever with red wine. Mm-hmm. But we decided to do it with white instead. And I don't I don't think our only reason for that was well we should try something new like yeah. you know everyone thinks beef and red wine go together but let's just see what happens when we cook it with, use white, it with a white and I think it turned out really nice like it's not super like deep and like 
you know, like how when you do a stew with a red wine, it's just so like dark and right. And that's well, not really going on here, so it's a really nice pairing with the wine since yeah. it's not like clashing. I don't know if clashing is the right word. Well, and I feel like I feel like if I had cooked this with red wine, it would have basically turned into a buff bourguignon, yeah, just without mushrooms. Exactly, and that's kind of what I was like. I don't want. I, we don't want it to turn out that way, right. and it didn't. It yeah, really absolutely. Nice. And and part of the reason we went back and forth is because most of you probably know when I when I'm doing these these recipes, what I do, like I was telling you earlier, Evan is that I'll decide what I want to cook and I'll read like five or six recipes and then I'll just do my own way based on the, the kind of style that they talk about in the recipes. Um, and across five or six recipes, <clears throat> I found basically split down the middle, people were making it with either white wine or red wine. So I was like, well, hell, I don't know like what's standard, what's traditional. So white wine was it. And I think it was yeah. turned out pretty good. Tasted great. Yeah, we used, I used a whole bottle of white wine between the stew and the risotto and drinking. What white wine did you use? I just used a standard, like, dry white. I <clears throat> grabbed a bottle of Spectrum White from West Cape Cellars, which is another Texas white blend. Um, but typically, um, you know, the rule is if, if you're going to cook with it, you have to be willing to drink it. Right. You know, and that's, that's the only thing I go for. The only difference would be, like, if you're going to use a dry wine versus a sweet wine or a red wine versus a white wine. But generally speaking, if I'm cooking with wine, it's just, you know, whatever I have around that's cheapest. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because, I mean, it's going to condense down. So if, it's exactly. taste, if it tastes like shit when it's <laughs> in the bottle, it's going to taste like shit. Exactly. In the dish. Um, I will say I was, I was a little bit of a brag here. Very proud of myself to make this risotto. Yeah. Um, I've never made a risotto before. I've always heard that Tricky it's really business. hard. Tricky business. Yeah, and, and you see on the like the Food Network all the time, people make a risotto, let's say, like chopped or something. They have 30 minutes, and they try to make a risotto, and it always comes out crunchy. Well, it turns out, if you just give yourself the time to do it, it's really not very hard at all. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did it. Again, based, uh, based on several different recipes I read, and I gave myself extra time. I knew we were planning on meeting at 7, so mm -hmm. I started it at 5.30, assuming it was going to take me an hour to cook, and I could just let it sit until you got here. And it did. It took me an hour to cook because the, the rice doesn't quite get to al dente very quickly because you're toasting it with onions and you're adding your liquid just like a spoonful at a time. Mm -hmm. So it did, it took a while and it took more liquid than I expected <clears> to. <throat> but yeah, I was really proud of, of how out this meal really nice. came out. Yeah, Perfect good. texture, everything. Consistency yeah. was on point. So the moral of this story is if you hear something's hard to make, just go for it. Give it a go. Heck yeah. Because I think it's, like it's worth a try. Like macaroons. <laughs> which is what Teresa is like known for. The only reason I make macaroons is because someone told me it was too hard to do it in your own kitchen. I was like, <laughs> try me, bet. <laughs> and now she sells them for me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's take a quick break and we will be right back with a little bit of Verdi. La, 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 mobile, Pensiero. 
And we're back, and Beppe and Mimi are here trying to gain our attention. So we're just going to love on them a minute, and Teresa <laughs> is going, as our opera novice, is going to kind of lead us through the synopsis, and uh, we'll talk about Verdi's Rigoletto. Yes. Take it away. I'm here to very awkwardly pull you through this uh, very problematic plot. <laughs> uh, Rigoletto is an opera by Giuseppe Verdi. Good. And um, I believe it was the late 1800s, correct? Um, Anyway, we'll get into the backstory of it, but let's just break it down. So we got the main players. Uh, Rigoletto is a jester in the court of the Duke of Mantua, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and he's a baritone. Uh, Duke of Mantua is a ruler who sleeps with married women. However, he's very charming, and he's also (laughs) a tenor. Uh, Gilda is Rigoletto's daughter, and she's very overprotected, and we'll see, I guess, why later. Uh, And she is a soprano. And then you have some minor characters, but they play a pretty big role in the part. So Count Monterone is a character that comes in pretty early on and uh, is a curse giver to (laughs) some of the main characters. Uh, And Sparafuchile. Sparafuchile, the town assassin because everybody, every town needs one, right? Sure. <laughs> Giovanna is Gilda's nursemaid, and Madalena is Sparfuchile's sister, and later used as a bait of sorts. Okay, so it, Act 1 opens at uh, the Duke's court, and they're having a party, a big wild party. Um, <laughs> almost, well. An orgy <laughs> oh, of Thank you. There you go, I was blushing trying to say euphemisms. it, but. Basically, that's what it is. Um, And he is seducing the... Actively, basically, seducing the Count's wife. Even though he's already become sweet on Gilda um, from church. So, like, every Sunday they've kind of been having this thing going on. Right. But, anyway, he seduces the Count's wife, uh, Rigoletto, uh, who, again, is Duke's jester is at this point mocking the count um just kind of I, I guess it's just like because he works for the duke he's mocking him right he's, he's taking what well, he's the jester right like he's the jester and he's humiliating him and um basically the count is very not okay with this and he puts a curse on rigoletto and the duke and um the courtier courtiers or like the the the, the men of the, the men town of the who are there um they discover that Rigoletto is secretly living with Gilda, who at the time they believe is his mistress. I guess, you know, that's the that's the, the obvious conclusion to come to. <laughs> um, and so the men, um, they go back. This is kind of after they've gone back to Rigoletto's uh, house and... They trick Rigoletto into being blindfolded because they're trying to talk him into the that they're kidnapping the girl next door. Right, so Chiprana. Yeah, and so they they blindfold him and then they take Gilda, and who they still believe is his mistress at this point. And they do this to humiliate him because he humiliated the Count. Um, And then they deliver Gilda to the Duke 
which I don't know if she knew that she was going to the Duke, but once she gets back to the court and the Duke realizes that Gilda is the one they've kidnapped, he's like, oh, right. Christmas. Like, oh, yes. So they go back and they do their thing. And, and, um, and somehow Gilda's <laughs> like, I love you. Yeah, right. So, so, <laughs> so then Rigoletto returns to court and discovers that Gilda is taken there. And he's very upset and he plots his revenge uh, even though Gilda says that he that she loves the Duke and she's and kind of begging for this his is where mercy stuff gets weird. It's really weird. Yeah, things get really weird. I'm not gonna get into that just yet. I'm just laying the plot out for you all guys. Right, all right, all right. Because I have many thoughts. Okay, so <laughs> Rigoletto plots his revenge and he contacts Sparafuchile because he's the town assassin um, and he wants him to kill the Duke. So they plot a plan to where Sparafuchile and his sister Madalena are going to lure him into uh, his tavern to murder him because they know that the Duke is going to not be able to resist Madalena because she's very beautiful and he's a man-ho. Um... Mildly, yes, putting it mildly. Um, so then Rigoletto, um, I guess takes Gilda to they lure him to this tavern. Uh, the Duke sees Madalena, of course, he's like charming her and wooing her and all this other things. And my favorite quartet, (laughs) I love this part. She knows what's about to happen, but she's there in on the game so she knows what's happening um so while this is happening Rigoletto takes Gilda to the tavern and they kind of are sneaking outside the window and he's there basically trying to convince her that he's a piece of garbage and that you know he's a womanizer he's no good for you blah 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 blah. here's you need to see it and she sees him wooing Madalena and of course she's upset um, Rigoletto then gives her like men's clothes and says, flee, get out of here, return safely home. At this point, she doesn't know what's about to happen, but she leaves the scene um, crushed, obviously, because she's still in love with, uh, with the Duke for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and then the, uh, the Duke retires to his bed. So he's in bed in a way. Uh, Gilda c- comes back to the tavern instead of going home, and she hears Rigoletto and Sparfuchile plotting to kill the Duke. So now she knows what's about to happen. Uh, Madalena is obviously charmed by the Duke and begs Sparfuchile not to kill him, but instead kill the next person that comes in because AKA I guess... A.K.A. Rigoletto. Yeah, I guess that, her, I think her real plan was like, yeah, kill Rigoletto. It just seems like such a random uh, alternative, but yeah, so that's what they decide. And um, Gilda hears this while they decide what to do, and she makes the decision to sacrifice herself and walk through the door and get killed by Sparfuchile so that they won't kill her love, the Duke. Um, and then a very weird set of circumstances uh, kind of transpire because uh, Rigoletto wanted to be the one to like dump the body because he wanted to have the ultimate revenge at the end. So they wrap her up in a rug, Gilda, and then drop her through a trap door where Rigoletto's like waiting for the body so he can take it down to the river and dump the body. And as he's doing this, 
he hears the Duke singing in the distance and he realizes that it's Jilda and not the Duke and he's horrified and she's half dead and they sing a duet and he she dies <laughs> in typical she, fashion which is the uh, yeah which is the <coughs> obvious thing to do in that moment they sing a, a I'm t- not dead yet <laughs> I feel happy he's yeah. only mostly uh, dead <laughs> and then in a last like cry proclamation he says that the curse has been done <clears throat> and the opera is over ah uh, yes scene and fine de l'opera <laughs> Um, shouts to Susan McClary, the author of Opera or the Undoing of Women, um, because... Um, oh, boy, is this opera an undoing of women? <laughs> Excuse me. The, uh, Catherine Clement. Susan McClary wrote the foreword for that book. So I'm just going to sit um, yes. back and let you guys talk about this for a while before I come in and like stir up the pot, because, boy, do I have... Thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, the first thing I'd like to say is uh, great music, excellent music, great music, <laughs> so, in this good. Opera. so good, so good. There are excellent. so many pieces in this show that that have made it into the American zeitgeist that exist in our culture that people know of, like La Donna Immobile is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, even Questo Quella you hear from time to time and um, the quartet is not unknown for sure. They made a whole movie about it. Yeah. Called yeah. The Quartet. They sure did, didn't they? And it had Maggie Smith in it. It did. Yeah, that was a great movie. Fun fact, Adam Sandler parodied La Donna Mobile on Saturday Night Live as Opera, Opera Man. Man. Yeah, yes. he did. And it was La Donna Mobile Home. <laughs> Classic. Not far off. That's it, yeah, right? Pretty close to the text. A-G-I-V-O-R-C. Okay, Amazing. go ahead. Um, yeah, so so great music. Excellent, uh, excellent <laughs> piece of art to go and see. Um, but I, I do want to talk for just a second about the idea of women in opera (laughs) especially in the operas of Verdi and Puccini I feel like women are just victims as a general I don't even know if you would call them victims because that would mean that they were at least treated like Humans. humans Right. When Jilda in this opera was just really treated like an object, she was literally spent most of the time being passed around. Yeah. But anyway. It's not great. Keep on, keep on. Um, well, you just think about, like, a lot of opera's heroines, and I think we talked about this with, with Reagan and Guillermo in, in at least one of our past episodes, um, but a lot of opera's women have little to no agency right they're always at the at the hand of fate or the hand of another man or they they, everything they do is dependent on something else um you especially see that in Verdi and Puccini when you have these heroines who are stricken by love um even at first sight and then everything else that happens to them doesn't happen about them or doesn't happen for them right and so I I think earlier when you were talking to me about this show my first thing was yeah I'm pretty sure Verdi hated women <laughs> because it's just it's it is it is it's rough it's rough um but there there's more to unpack to it i think too and i will say opera or the undoing of women is an amazing book i read it back in grad school and i'm getting ready to reread it and i suggest anyone who's listening who's interested in feminine studies 
and or opera should read this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's just my little two cents. Verdi does have a tendency to hypersexualize and to hyper-victimize his women. Um, and it's it's... It's interesting to see how that ages and how people deal with that in the modern era. Yeah, I, I was more struck by the fact that, and, and you know, you again, just like you said, you see this victimization of women, this um, just real, like, materialistic treatment of women throughout the ages in opera. But what I found most striking about this opera in particular was the fact that the the main female character in this opera was really used as a tool to kind of launch the tr- the problems of these men in right. this opera and and it was really all that they did to her was to either soothe an ego or seek vengeance on somebody that that hurt their ego. It was all about the men around her, their feelings, and their whatever you want to call it. They're they're seeking to hurt other men. And they're just using her as as a a tool for that. Right, yeah. And that just made it even more egregious. Yes, like you could, there was kidnapping and there was, you know, her assault. (laughs) Yeah, her father, like keeping her basically voluntarily locked up except for Sundays, like all these things. It's just a way for the men to quell their uneasiness. Yeah. You know, anyway. It is interesting to see. kind of the more modern productions and their takes on it like like you think of the one at the Met that's set in like Vegas, Vegas. yeah and 1960s Vegas yeah and it's 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 all interesting to see how like th- they try to like dance around it in different ways like the Duke is for all intents and purposes a romantic lead you know and, yeah and, and it's disgusting it's, it's, to be honest yeah like, it's that's, rough. I think that's what I was I was angry literally the whole time I was watching this opera and I wanted I mean I did I think you can be angry at an at an opera or a large work but still enjoy it and still enjoy the experience but I was so angry the whole time because it's not just of how they treated Gilda it was the fact that even though he was kind of painting the Duke as sort of like a villain type he was still giving him these you know these arias that were were love songs and and these duets he was made to be the love interest even though he's a terrible human being Mm -hmm. so there is no like effort up to that point to to actually paint him as a villain even Mm -hmm. though he was the villain I don't know what do you think I don't know if I um, explicitly agree with that I understand I can very easily see where you're coming from but I mean, it could be the fact that I'm a guy. Like, <laughs> there were always like, I mean, to be to be fair, I mean, like you, fair, you make a lot of fantastic points um, that are obviously coming from a female perspective. Sure, sure. So, oh, Mimi did not like that. Talking about females and dogs. <laughs> Pardon me. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, I think like any story, you can make it black and white or you can really fill out your characters right sure. and the lot you know a, any story can be really cut and dry and you can make just this the duke is just a straight-up villain or you can find complexity in the character and try to fill them out and make them a real person right sure. so 
any person in power, especially back then, I mean, like, depends on the setting you're actually looking at um, for this show, but, like, traditional settings are usually, like, 1600s, 1700s. So, like, the, the production I'm currently in is going to be more like 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, Mantua. So, you have to think about that's a very different society than we're in, right? Sure. Which obviously allows you to look at it with, you know, in a less harsh light. Um, but at the same time, you also have to realize that the struggles of somebody in power, they they have to always protect their power, mm-hmm. right? So the Duke, yes, don't get me wrong, like, he's definitely not a good guy. And if you play the Duke well, you get booed at the end, and that's how you know you did a good job. Same thing okay. with, like, Pinkerton Butterfly. I appreciate Butterfly. that, yeah. If you get okay. booed. I appreciate I that. I did my job, yeah. right? Um... But you can you can find complexity to the Duke if you look at it from the from the uh, vantage point that the Duke has all of these men around him that are all vying for his power, and the only way that he can maintain his power is by constantly reinforcing that he has power mm-hmm. over all of these guys. From the very beginning of the show, he comes in and uh, basically, like you had said in the plot description, he goes after Chaprano's wife. Chaprano is a member of his court, right. and his he is in fact a count, but the duke, obviously being a duke, is higher up in the uh, hierarchy than him, and so he take, you know, gets sweet on his wife and basically makes a big deal out of how he's gonna right. go so, his wife. So basically, it's sort of like he's showing out to his boys. Mm-hmm. Or showing out to... Or, or showing dominance. Showing I would, dominance. Yeah, I would say it's more of a dominance display. <clears throat> so, and that's kind of why Rigoletto has hid Gilda, because he knows that this is the world that he lives in. And at times, he's the worst person in that world. Yeah. Sure. And he, and he has to be, because otherwise... You know, yeah. I mean, he's already he's already facing his own issues and being like quote unquote deformed or whatever. And exactly. so, and so, you know, if he if he doesn't conform to what they want of him, they will likely kill him or just throw him out in the streets. Exactly, he'll lose his place at court, right. and then he'll have no more value. And it's gonna, he's not going to be able to fit in very easily because he is in fact deformed, hunchback, however you want to read it. Uh, but yeah, so there is a lot yeah. of that sort of. Uh, dog eats dog sort of mentality, and unfortunately, like you had said, the women are caught kinda, in the crossfire. They're caught in the crossfire. Although, you can also make the case that they are at times using the tools at their disposal to their advantage, right? So maybe Chaprana's wife, depending upon how the direction of the show is, maybe she's actually using that as a moment to leverage her position and actually elevate herself among the other women. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, but, or you could just make it super straight up rape. <laughs> he just takes it in the back, he rapes her, everyone watches, you know, everyone's like, huh, Yeah. just another Tuesday. <laughs> happy, uh, happy day at court, right? Right. Well, and, and if, if, Let's say that were the case that the, those women were using their position of uh, that moment of seduction to kind of mm-hmm. make their way through the ranks and and gain some political power or what have you. That may be something that would have been happening at that time in real life, or you could look at it in a sense that that's how Verdi viewed women in a sense that yeah, he thought that that's possible. how they operated or it could be just you know the prevailing opinion of the time who knows right. and 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 i think you do have a good point and that we do have to kind of think about these works in the lens of the time period they were written and and an, an interesting thing to note <clears throat> we have to always remember with opera is that the composer 
didn't necessarily write the story. Right. That's true, yeah. Right? So this story is actually Victor Hugo. Okay. You know, and, and I adapted. often forget that as an opera novice, by the way. Sure, and it's easy to forget. <laughs> and and yeah. so it's always an interesting thing to kind of come back to is that Victor Hugo wrote this, the original story that this yeah. is based on, and, and that was adapted by Francesco Maria Piave, who wrote the the libretto for this opera, the the lyrics, if you will, for this opera, which Verdi then set to music. Yeah. Right? Now, granted, Verdi picked the Victor Hugo novel and yeah. said, hey, fix this for me so I can write an opera about it. Right? Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that... that you know, these are the things that Verdi is is picking out for his his subjects. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> and, think, he, and he does have some... Cre- I, I do believe, even though they don't write the story, they have creative license to kind of frame that story how they want to, depending right. on the musical setting. I think that does make a big difference. Because you can, you know, like I said, my, kind of my big big gripe about the Duke is that he's framed as such a, a love interest with yeah. mm-hmm. with the numbers that he's given. But that's a choice, you know. And it may be an appropriate cho- choice, but it is a choice. Something that's interesting to me, we talked about how, how the Duke is kind of framed as this romantic lead, um, but still, the opera, the title is Rigoletto, right? It's named uh, uh, for the, the jester. Uh, as I'm looking here, the, the title of the Victor Hugo novel... <laughs> is Le Roi Zamuse, which is the king amuses himself. <coughs> so it's interesting to me that, that the novel was was really centered around the Duke character, mm-hmm. the, the king, if you will, and and still Rigoletto is, is this same story that's kind of told through the lens of the jester. And and I wonder if maybe to some extent, you know, the, the idea of, of being the jester, of being the butt of the joke, of being the one that gets picked on and, and these tragic things are still happening to him. He's still, you know, his his daughter is killed. He, he basically kills her for all intents and purposes. You know, like, I wonder if it's this sort of, like, almost a commentary. You know what I mean? On on the, the lower class just can't get, they just don't have a chance sort of thing and and maybe i'm reaching maybe i'm projecting but but that's just an interesting kind of way that that just kind of popped into my brain yeah. and i was like it's just a thought yeah and also without getting too historical this particular opera's opera had so many problems with the oh my gosh the censorship yeah, yeah because they did not the like... idea of you killing a duke you know oh that's it, what they had problems yeah. with that, okay. I mean, the, that was one of the big complaints one like you big... can't you can't conspire to kill a duke that's you know, that's cause for revolution. So um, that was a big problem. Uh, A lot of things were changed back and forth. Verdi would make a version of it, and then he'd have to go have it adapted so that it would be approved and back and forth. So that was something also he was dealing with. But, I mean, to kind of go back to what we were talking about in in terms of, like, the gender Mm -hmm. um, imbalance, it's very clearly there. Yeah. and, And that was obviously very clear of the time, too. And I think... We can only really say, like, within the past probably 20 years, is really has it come to the forefront significantly? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, I mean, and j- just to even be aware of that layer of those guys kidnapped her 
and delivered her to a man. And even after she was went through all that, she's, she's still in she, love yeah. with the man that actively participated in that activity. Even though he didn't know about it at the right. beginning, he still participated in it, even though they were involved. I just feel like... And this is a really modern take on it, obviously, because we're getting very much like a little bit more woke on these issues. <laughs> I, I can't imagine now somebody being like, oh, your friends kidnapped me and you were like, all right, that's cool. Let's have sex and I'm still going to be in love with you. That just... <sighs> It's just, I was another just number of things that bothered me about this. But again, you just have to go back to the time that it was written. I guess that was not an issue back in that day. Sure. Well, I mean, like, there's no getting around it. The Duke's a very problematic character, right? Yeah. So the very first, like, aria he's singing at the very top of the show is this one or that one, Quest Torquella. Who am I going to sleep with, right? Yeah. Right, it doesn't matter. Right. And then we get to La Donna Mobile at the very end, and he's singing, you know, women are fickle. Ha ha ha, how ironic. You can't trust a You woman. are sleeping yeah. with everyone, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there is this interesting moment at the very beginning of Act 3 after Jilda has been kidnapped, but before the Duke knows what's happened to her. Yeah. Where he does have this moment where he sings El Mi Fuera which goes into Parmi Vedere Lagrime. Great art. And, oh, it's so hard. It's, it's so really hard. hard. <laughs> Such a hard part. <laughs> I um, tried to sing part of it today, uh, and I was like, okay, well, I'm done with that. I, uh, we don't need to go into me. Okay, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, but that is like the one moment where the Duke actually looks like he has feelings. Yeah, I would he's, agree. He's singing about how Jilda's lost and how, you know, he doesn't know who could have done it. He went to her place because he went back after they had kidnapped her. And the gate was open. There was nobody there. Like, who could have taken his angel? Right? And then, uh, so he tends to be oddly remorseful for somebody who he's been trying to, like, throw some side eye at it first. Sure. Uh, maybe see if she wants to come back over later. So he obviously has some feelings here. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a couple of minutes and then all his courtiers come back in and all of a sudden now he has to put his front back yeah. on. Yeah. So it, you can look at it two ways. I, you know, having had to sing that aria, I always had to rationalize it as Evan. So I would have to say, well, the Duke can't be this total POS because I can't be a total POS. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get in bed with my wife every night. So she would be like, yeah, you know, if you're POS, you gotta sit on the couch. So um, I always had to rationalize it as the Duke's actually a good person underneath it all. But because of circumstances, because he has to maintain his power, he doesn't know another way to be other than a total piece of crap. And that's the only way that he can exist with all of the scrutiny of court. Because court is a dog-eat-dog sort of world. And he's on top right now, but he never knows how long. So that's how I always had to rationalize it. And if you do that, then it kind of makes a little bit more sense why he gets through it. And then you can kind of explain away the other things like he just gets caught up in it. Sure. So, But that's obviously me with my dude lenses on. I'm trying to look at it and be like, how can I make this work? for me (laughs) so and I understand that that's not going to be every production and that's not going to be everyone's reading but that was how I always had to rationalize it yeah it's I mean, an interesting. Te- it's an interesting take for sure, and it and it does bring a level of depth to the Duke, mm-hmm. um, which I think is important as a performer to have that depth in your own character, yeah. right? Like, if I were going to sing the Duke, I would need that much depth 
to even convey anything to the sure. audience, right? Because it's like that the whole iceberg exactly. theory that they talk about. Like, eight, what is it, like 75, 80% of the iceberg is underwater. What you see is just 20%, right? And so in order for the your 20% that people are seeing to be substantial, you have to have so much more underneath. Exactly. That's a very, very... Uh, interesting way to kind of look at it especially for a character that can seem so just nasty up top yeah yeah for sure yeah hell I had to play a pedophilic ghost once yeah you did but you did great <laughs> really tapped into that character <laughs> you guys are so funny yeah. go Quint uh so I have a musical note. Okay. In this one. Love it. Um, Which pitch? D sharp. Oh. <laughs> Not very good with that one. Can we make it E flat? D flat. There yeah. you go. <laughs> um, no, the um, the 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 last scene in the third act or the third act where the 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 storm starts coming in. Oh, yeah. I really enjoyed that orchestration. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of William Tell. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And just it brought back a lot of memories because I played that back in high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the condensed uh, band version. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, and, but um, I really appreciated that illustration um, that he did there. And there were just some really beautiful moments. Yeah. uh, Especially with Jilda's um, the aria she sings on Karunome. the balcony. Oh yeah. my gosh, that right She's at the very end. She's still in love with him. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, you're talking about the very end. No, not the one at the very, very end. Oh, Her okay. aria. In the beginning yeah. of the Karunome. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Just at the end of that aria where she's just so soft and and gentle and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. There's, um, a, I mean, there's a lot of fantastic music in this. All of the principals have great arias and they're absolutely. all hard. <laughs> so. um, one kind of um, musicological note, if I can, if I can nerd out on music history for a second. Um, so you, you mentioned how this kind of storm scene, <clears throat> excuse me reminds you of William Tell a little bit. Um, and then there's so much about this opera that reminds me about later Verdi and Puccini and this sort of like Verismo style of mm-hmm. opera. Um, and I think it's it's very interesting and important to note that Rigoletto kind of marked a, tor- a turning point for Verdi's but compositional a huge, style. Huge pivot point, yeah. Yeah, um, because when Verdi was starting in opera, he was kind of writing in an, an almost bel canto style, mm-hmm. right? He was writing in the style of late Rossini because that's when it was. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so that was the style that was popular, and that's how he started with things like Idui Foscati mm-hmm. and, and kind of his early stuff. And when he hit Rigoletto, he was he was kind of in this transition away from the use of like secco recitativo, away from the use of dry recitative it's to where like he was able to start moving the action along in arias and ensembles which yeah. was at, to this point not done the right? pacing you know? is really exciting in this this opera i feel like there's there there were a lot less um applause pauses for applause and that sort of thing like it just went it from never one thing to the next to the <laughs> next and i really appreciate that i mean i know I'm I'm growing in appreciation for all time periods in opera, but I I did really enjoy that, and I don't know if that's something that early Verdi is like. I, I you just mentioned that this was a big turning point for him, yeah, so yeah, I don't know absolutely. if any of his other operas are paced that way, but 
yeah. would say his later operas more than his earlier operas. Sure, sure. Because because this is where he started to do that, started to create this sort of continuous flow of things. Because in earlier opera, all the way up into late Bel Canto, you had this sort of this structure that everyone abided by, especially in Bel Canto, where you had you know cavatina, cabaletta, blah blah blah. blah. You know, every scene was structured yeah. exactly the same way with a transition in the middle, mm-hmm. and this is what's happening. And so there was only so much emotion and so much action you could pack into one scene and still fit it in the scene structure. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that classic Rossini structure. Um, and so this is where Verdi starts to deviate from that and start to kind of create his own ideas and his own structures. And and that, I think, is what really kind of leads us into the Verismo style of opera, where things are more real. Mm-hmm. You know, his later works, when you get into Un Balo in Mascara, when you get into Fanchula del West, those those big, like... Everything is moving all the time, and it's Verdi. And my God, by the time you get to Falstaff, it's a it's a totally different composer. Sure, you know, and so it's it's just so interesting to watch his transformation. And and Verdi's life, music historians kind of split it into three periods, mm-hmm. and this was like the pivot point. It was definitely the middle period. Yeah, yeah. middle period, like like yeah. So this, this Traviata and Trovatore mark that that huge transition for Verdi, where he left. I don't know how far into music history we want to go, but uh, in the beginning, he was literally doing exactly what Rossini did, which is where he worked uh, for an opera house, and he just churned out operas for them, and those were referred to as the early period or the galley years, where he was just sitting there, and he would just have to basically just figure it out. He would recycle all these old themes from other works so you could just make something happen so that they had a show for the end of the month, mm-hmm. you know, and then once he got here, then uh, he wrote this and Traviata and Trovatore, and that was kind of his breaking out. He had finally made a big enough name for himself that he could tell them, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I'm going to write stuff the way I want to write it, and that's what that big transition was about. Yeah, for sure, nice. and I think it's 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 interesting <laughs> to note that, I, I at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. just because... This is so different from his early stuff. And his early stuff really is not done very much anymore. And there's a reason for that, I think. Because this is the Verdi that Verdi wanted to, to portray, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you dive into some of his art song, is much more in this style than it is in, in his earlier style. So it's just it's, it's something interesting to think about. Um, it is also interesting to think about the kind of stories he chooses, you know, just between La Traviata and Rigoletto, the two Verdi <laughs> operas we've done. It's, you know, it's the, women are dying and women are, you know, but, but even still, like, it, his music is just so rich and it's so important to the, the operatic repertoire and, you know, I don't know. See Rigoletto. Go watch it. Go watch it. Go watch it. It's, it's really, really worth your time. And it's not very long so when you think about no, it. I watch the film version <laughs> it's on, YouTube. Oh, yes. on YouTube. And I will say, it, yes. like, if you really enjoy a really cheesy 80s movie like off the shelf VHS style this is for you oh, I mean so it is gold <laughs> I love it it's gold and it's actually really fun to watch but it's, there's a it's great really... scene in that one too yeah, just... yeah it's, it's an all great singer <laughs> yeah. so yeah if you're looking for for something 
you can definitely check that one out Absolutely. on YouTube. That said, for all of our listeners in Texas, uh, you should have no excuse to not see this opera this year. Um, I think within the next week or two, it's it's playing in, at Houston Grand Opera. Mm-hmm. Um, in early November, it's playing in in Austin here sure. in Austin, um, which Evan is in the chorus of. Mm-hmm. So shouts to our uh, our buddy here, Evan. Um, and then it's in San Antonio, I think, in April. Yeah. So so I mean, it's it's all over the place this season. Um, and of course, it's always at the Met. Every year, it's at the Met. <laughs> you know, it's one of those shows that just gets cycled in often. Good old War Horse. <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so I know we we talk a lot about kind of the problematic aspects of these things, but I think it's important to to make them clear and make them mm-hmm. obvious to our audience. Um, but but that doesn't mean you shouldn't see these shows. They are really really special pieces of art. Um, the singing is just otherworldly. I mean, this sort of blending of the bel canto verismo styles, like, is just so special. Like, caro nome, questo quella, la donna immobile, parmi. I mean, all these arias are great, and of course, I name all the tenor arias because yeah. I'm the tenor. We'll, we'll say some regular, you know, Parisiano, Partigiani. Yeah. My God, that one is the. Uh, what's his name? Bryn Terfel? Did he sing Regaletto? I don't no? think so. Maybe he did. I don't know. He sang everything. He sung everything. Sung anyway, now. the the <laughs> fact of the matter is, go see Rigoletto. There, it's amazing parts for every voice type except mezzo, whatever. There's a, they're there. But <laughs> she gets in the quartet. She gets in the quartet. She's in the quartet, man. Which is also very good. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Go see Rigoletto. That's yeah. all. That's all I got. <laughs> that's all I got too. All right. So shall we plug some pluggables? Yeah. Evan. Where yes. can we find you, follow you, go see you sing, stuff like that? Um, well, I'm obviously based here out of Austin, Texas, so I do sing with Austin Opera a lot. Um, I sing with San Antonio sometimes. Um, I'll be in Sarasota from January to March doing their apprentice program, so I'll, I'll be around. I'll actually be back here in Austin singing The Emperor and Turandot with Austin Opera in May when they're actually doing Rigoletto down in uh, San Antonio. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much here for now. And then um, I'm on Instagram at Evan K. Brown, and I also have a Facebook page, Evan K. Brown Tenor. So feel free to look me up there. Absolutely. And he's good at singing, so definitely uh, (laughs) give him a chance if you can. Uh, Teresa, where can we find you, follow you? Um, You can follow me on Instagram at PowellTK and Twitter at TeresaTheFlute. And um, I'm not currently on Facebook right now, but I would definitely encourage you to go check out my other podcast, which are currently dormant, but I'm about to release season two of Perfectly Imperfect Musician. You can also find Film Music Nerds, uh, both of those on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud at those names. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, and if you need uh, piano lessons for your little <laughs> for your little darling, go to TeresaKPal.com. That's K-A-Y-E. And then contact me via email. Bye. Okay, bye. Um, you can follow me on all social medias at Z-Man Tenor. Um, also, ZacharyThomasNewman.com if you want to go check out my website and, I don't know, maybe hire me. Um, <laughs> you can Venmo me at Z-Man Tenor as well. So if you feel like sending me some money, please do. I'm broke. No um, context, just money. <laughs> find 
us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Um, working on getting us on Spotify, but in the meantime, those are the places to find us. We have an Instagram and a Twitter at Eat Drink Opera. We do have a Facebook fan page, Eat Drink Opera, but we don't post there very much except to really share our new episodes because Facebook's honestly kind of lame. Uh, um, that said... <clears throat> Um, what else do we have going? That's about it, right? Yeah. So follow us on all the social medias. Oh, make sure you go on to, um, no matter where you're listening to this right now, please, if you like what we do, if you support what we do, go on to Apple Podcasts and and rate, review, and subscribe here. Um, it just helps us spread the word. The more ratings we have, the more reviews we have, the more visibility we get in the market, and, and the easier it is to kind of make opera accessible to more people. Um, that said, before we leave, we always like to ride out um, on a featured artist. I didn't forget this month. Thank so you. Good for me, I guess. <laughs> um, so this month's um, featured artist is Holt Skinner. Um, Holt is a countertenor who, um, like most countertenors, I should say, specializes in early music. Uh, this recording is of Holt singing Sta Nelidicana from Alcina by Handel. Um, please enjoy this. Uh, the orchestra is the University of Missouri Philharmonic Orchestra. So uh, good job, Holt, on that. And um, if you like to learn more about him, maybe ask him to come sing for you someday. I've got his bio and his information in the footnotes. Footnotes. That said, cheers. cheers.